Aaron. Welcome to another episode of How to Love the Dark, a podcast where I walk my wife and one of my good friends down the long, shadowy path (laughs) to horror cinema obsession as I try to take them from novices of the macabre to bloodbath experts one film at a time. This week we watched Anthony Hickox's Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth from 1992. My birth year. Oh, your birth year? Yeah, I was born in 92, baby. Aww. Before we get into that, let me introduce my co-hosts, and since we started, we'll start with Torin from across town through the magic of the internet. Torin, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this uh, this movie. I've been... Oh my god. Uh, so, we just talked about this movie being uh, my birth year. Huh? It came out the same month I was born, too. <laughs> nice. 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 This, you were born to like this movie. It, this movie came out four days before I was born. Yes. This is your birthday movie. Cool. So it's your favorite, right? <laughs> Ergo, it is it is now just my favorite. Top of the list, baby. Let's go. <laughs> I, I mean, the criteria. That's really about as close as a movie could come out to when you were born, since they only came out on Fridays at this point. Yeah. Doug Bradley's my dad. <laughs> Ayo. That'd be awesome. Dude, I'd love Doug Bradley be my dad. Doug Bradley seems pretty cool. Seems cool as hell. Yeah. You've also heard her voice sitting next to me is my wife, Anna. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I was not born in 92. No. You were born before that. Yes. <laughs> yes. As, as was I. <laughs> Quite uh, a bit before that. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> all right. Content warnings for torture, mutilation, gore, sexual misconduct, depictions of war, and probably some other stuff. We're probably forgetting something. Reminder to use the internet if you have content sensitivities. Do your own research. Yeah, there are there are websites for you, uh, including doesthedogdie.com and wheresthejump.com. Please do your research, as Torin said. That's for your health. <laughs> Key cast members in this one. Uh, we have Ashley Lawrence in a special appearance, returning as Kirsty. Uh, we have Terry Farrell as our new protagonist, Joey. We have Kevin Bernhardt as J.P. Monroe. Doug Bradley as Pinhead, credited this time as Pinhead, not as lead Cenobite. Paula Marshall as Terry, and Ken Carpenter as Doc, the cameraman. There's some other bit parts, but those are the important ones, I think. All right, and without further ado, Anna, take it away. Yay! We start this movie in an art gallery. A man smoking a cigarette enters an art gallery but doesn't find much of interest until he sees an ornate sculpted pillar. We can see the lament configuration as well as Pinhead's face on different sides of the pillar among tortured screaming faces. A supposed art dealer who looks extraordinarily sketchy shows up to sell the piece to the smoking man who we will later learn is named J.P. Monroe. The art dealer charges him whatever he thinks the pillar is worth. We cut to Joey, a reporter, and her cameraman, Doc, who have given up on finding a story in the local hospital. Doc is instead called to cover another reporter, and Joey is going to give up and head home, when a man is rushed in on a gurney with bloody chains draping off the sides. She follows as he's pulled into an operating room, but it's too late. The chains pull at his flesh before his head explodes. 
Joey asks Terry, the woman who came in with him, what happened. But Terry's too freaked out to give much information, except that they were both at a club called The Boiler Room. The next night, Joey goes to the nightclub to see if there's some kind of story here. And her outfit is like glam chef. <laughs> it's a stereotypical 90s movie goth metal club full of edgy sculptures and heavy metal and a, and a baby hanging from the yeah. ceiling. Joey makes her way through the nightclub to the attached fine dining establishment where she meets J.P. Monroe, Terry's ex-boyfriend and the man who bought the pillar at the beginning. Terry is also at the club, but Joey doesn't see her. Luckily, though, Terry finds Joey's card and calls her, offering her the scoop if Joey can provide Terry a place to stay for the night. When Terry arrives at Joey's apartment, they talk about each other's dreams, um, like actual sleeping dreams, not aspirations, and surprisingly pass the Bechdel test. Joey is having a recurring dream about her father who died in Vietnam before she was born, and Terry says she's never been able to dream before. Joey questions her about the man who died in the hospital, and Terry tells her that the chains came from a puzzle box showing Joey the lament configuration, freshly chiseled out of the pillar sculpture. Back at the club, JP finds the hole in the sculpture, and he reaches his hand into it, where a rat jumps up and bites him. His blood gets on the statue, which drinks it up via Pinhead's mouth. Meanwhile, Terry takes Joey to the art gallery, where she says she found the sculpture for JP to purchase. A passerby walking his dog says the gallery's closed. It's been closed for a month because the owner's been on vacation. Terry insists that can't be. Terry helps break into the place and they go through the records to find the origins of the pillar. And it turns out it's from the Chouinard Institute from the last movie. Terry finds pictures of Kirstie Cotton and Elliot Spencer, the man who would become Pinhead. And Joey calls the Institute, and they agree to send Kirstie's interview tapes. Yep. Nice. Uh, is the the man that poses the art dealer, is that the bearded, like, homeless man from the first movie as well? Or is that, like, implied? I don't know if it's meant to be. I think there's, like, some argument that it could be. It is a different actor, because it's one of the movie's producers that is playing that guy. Yeah. Um, but he is... In a very similar get-up. Yeah. Yeah. And dear listener, we have another great, you know, special effects scene at the start where the chains are floating and, like, pull the the kid apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just classic, classic 80s special effects. Well, this is 92. Oh, oh shit. Early 90s special yeah. effects. Oh, my God. I I played myself. <laughs> but classic, classic late 80s, 90s special effects. Let me rephrase. Although that was the first special effects to make me go, ah, because you kind of see the guy's head explode. They kind of break away from it. So you just catch a glimpse of his head being ripped apart. But then the minute you see like Joey back out in the hallway with the hospital room behind her, his head is still intact on the table. Yeah, you just see a, a man lying down with a head. Yeah, like his head had not exploded. Yeah, it's, it's expensive to make a whole dummy just for one background shot, you know. So don't show the head. Have the head out oh, of frame. The, okay, I see what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, that's fair. Also, I like that we have upgraded from 
just the puzzle box to big ass pillar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. All right. Act two, Torrin. Uh, next up though. Yeah. We're back at the boiler room and, uh, JP, our resident art connoisseur slime ball seduces uh, a woman from the bar and they go up to his penthouse above the boiler room to have like a awkward semi BDSM sex scene. And he's like smoking while they're doing it. And it's, it's very, it's very nineties. Um, after they're done though, JP becomes incredibly cold and mean and insists that the woman leave his fucking shirt and leave. She goes off on him and fortunately backs as she's backing up. She backs up too close to the pillar, which throws out a bunch of hooks and like sucks her in and pinhead awakens and then uses the hooks to like pull her skin off. And we get another like skinless body scene, uh, classic Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gotta have at least one. <laughs> and the body is then like pulled horizontal and then pulled into the statue where she's like added to the 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 pillar in a pained visage um going with the many other faces in the pillar pinhead then awakens and talking through the statue convinces jp to aid him by appealing to his lust for power and revealing that he has knowledge about how jp's parents were killed um long story short he killed his parents to take their fortune uh at this point uh pinhead's still stuck in the pillar needing more blood to escape its its confines uh, again, classic Hellraiser. While this is happening, though, Joey, cut back to Joey, and she's watching the tapes of Kirsty um, that she gets from the Kitchenard Institute, and uh, Elliot Spencer, like, ghosts appears in the videos to interrupt her, to tell her that Kirsty is telling the truth about the horrible things that have happened to her. We cut back, and JP is calling Terry's house, and or calling Terry at Joey's house, and tells her that he wants her back, because um, he obviously wants to sacrifice her to the pillar, at first, she's resistant, uh, but then she a call for Joey. Probably keep forgetting that Joey is the the female protagonist and not JP. Uh, s- yeah, super confusing. Uh, but so at first she's resistant, but uh, after she hangs up, there's a call that she lets go to voicemail on Joey's answering machine that promises Joey a job in Monterey that she may be looking for. Um, so Terry feels like she's been left all alone again. So she leaves a prickly note, ruins Joey's house, and heads back to the boiler room. Um, Joey comes home and finds the note, and then has the same dream as before with like the Vietnam flashback of her father. This screens her into like a World War era, World War One era trench, like it kind of transitions, where she sees Elliot Spencer in uniform. Um, when she awakens, though, Spencer's on her TV, telling her that she has to help him. I love, though, that Joey does not react at all to her apartment having been trashed. Yeah. yeah. Like, there's no reaction, and they never discuss it later. But, I mean, Terry, like, destroys the kitchen, so I don't... I guess she's probably not super shocked anymore that if she leaves Terry to her own devices, the house is going to get fucking ruins. <laughs> yeah, maybe this whole thing was an insurance scheme. Ooh. Yeah, and when I meant when I say Spencer listeners, I'm talking about Elliot Spencer. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry though then arrives at JP's apartment, and he's pretending to listen to her problems, ob- like obviously just waiting to get her to the statue, um, so that Pinhead can devour her. She manages to punch him uh, with a pair of brass knuckles, though. Uh, after he kind of like gives up and just starts trying to like drag her to the pillar, as she goes to escape and try to unlock the front door, though, Pinhead offers her. 
a world where she can dream again if she would just push JP closer to the pillar. Um, I can't remember if Anna mentioned it, but uh, Terry mentioned she doesn't have dreams. So Pinhead uses that to try to get her to, to do his bidding. Um, she does so, though, and Pinhead then pushes two pistons through JP's head, uh, killing him and giving him the power to escape the pillar, which collapses into goop and like rubble and kind of explodes around him. Uh, meanwhile, though, at uh, Joey's apartment, Joey opens a curtain to find, first finds like a radio in her closet. That's the radio you might recognize from Hellraiser 2 uh, with the big dial that shows the different like regions of Europe that you can tune into. Um, after she listens to that, she opens her curtain and sees that, um, Elliot Spencer is on the other side of her window in that same bunker in that, that scene from Pellerizer 2 solving the puzzle box, but he's frozen in time. Um, she pushes through the window kind of magically as if it weren't there and finds a non-frozen Elliot Spencer this time who fills her in on the history of Pinhead. Um, it seems that Spencer and Pinhead are now split. Um, and that pinhead that she's dealing with is no longer bound by the rules of the lament configuration and can freely operate outside of hell uh, without the the need of the puzzle box. Um, he says that he needs to help her. He needs her help to defeat Pinhead uh, since he's been stuck in this dream limbo. And he says that he she has to lure Pinhead back to the window and that the box is the key and that she can't give Pinhead the box. There's there's a whole bunch of like lines in the script that are just written to explain things that uh, clearly were like, wait, why does this happen? <laughs> and my my favorite one here is where like Elliot Spencer gets to her through her dreams of her dad, and you're like, why can he do that? And his reasoning is a dream of one war is a dream of all wars. And it's, <laughs> it's like, uh, is it okay? I guess <laughs> Look, it's so yeah, weird. Those are some those are some pretty cool U two lyrics, bro. Yeah. <laughs> At the boiler room, a more mobile pinhead murders so, so many people in all kinds of neat ways, tearing open someone's face. Hell yeah. Of note, he uh, kills the bartender, who is played by screenwriter Peter Atkins, uh, who co-wrote last movie, this movie, and is the sole writer on the next movie. Uh, And by wrapping barbed wire around his face... Uh, he also kills the DJ by impaling his head with a bunch of CDs. Joey sees a report about this massacre on TV and calls Doc to tell him to meet her there so she can report on it. He agrees because he made a promise that he'd be there for her, even though when he turns on his TV, it doesn't seem to have that same report. And as Joey grabs the puzzle box and heads for the door, we see her television isn't even plugged in. Also... The cord to our television wouldn't even be able to reach a wall from where it's at. It also so, it also doesn't make any sense. Why isn't her TV right, plugged in? Like who unplugged it? <laughs> Why would it be unplugged? We, we don't know. It's unplugged to show us that this is not a real broadcast. Yeah. Um, the club is a scene of absolute carnage with hundreds of bodies strewn about. Uh, I believe there are 246 bodies according to the Kill Count episode for this, which he... Complains about many of the scenes being very difficult to count all the deaths. No kidding. Uh, as Joey looks around, she finds she eventually like finds Doc, uh, who has been decapitated with his head upside down in his lap and a camera uh, on his shoulders where his head once was. Pinhead shows up and demands the box, but Joey refuses, running out of the club. 
Outside, Pinhead somehow causes numerous catastrophes, including explosions and down power lines, but Joey manages to dodge all those. She then runs into Doc, who is now a Cenobite, with his camera embedded in his face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he tries to kill Joey, but she avoids it before he uses his telescoping lens to core through the head of a bystander. The DJ uh, then shows up as a Cenobite, uh, looking real silly and killing people with thrown CDs. <laughs> <laughs> And he walks like an animatronic. Yeah. He's a B-boy. Yeah. The, <laughs> then uh, they get behind all the cops, uh, a line of cops who pull up. Uh, Joey does. But the uh, the bartender Cenobite bursts through the wall. Kool-Aid band style. He throws a martini shaker full of gasoline on them and then uses his newfound fire breath to light them all on fire. I want to stop. So... He has fire powers because the first scene we meet him, he does a cool trick where he makes some fire come out of the shaker. Yes, yeah, that is true. If you remember, dear listener, that is the thematic tie-in here. <laughs> it's like it's a straw grasper for sure. Uh, Joey seeks shelter in a church, uh, where she tells a priest that demons are following her. The priest says demons are all allegory and metaphor. Before Pinhead then just shows up. Uh, he does a great Jesus on the cross impersonation and commits some mild desecration. Uh, <laughs> Joey distracts Penhead by starting to solve the box uh, and then runs outside to a conspicuously placed construction site. This is also the weirdest church. It's filled with just chairs. Well, that's because it's not really a church because they well, that couldn't. That's obvious. <laughs> this movie was shot in Greensboro, North Carolina, and they could not get a church to let them shoot Hellraiser inside. They apparently also could not locate pews. Yeah, I could see that. That'd be a thing. It's like, uh, do you want to spend hundreds of dollars on these or just like put some chairs? Just in a rent row? some chairs. Yeah. Uh, she runs, then runs into JP, who is now the piston head Cenobite, with the pistons that went through his head early. They're kind of, like, constantly pumping, uh, into his head. Uh, and also Terry as a Cenobite who is strangely cigarette-themed. Um, <laughs> she tells Joey that she can dream now, and then all of these new Cenobites surround Joey and attack her. Uh, kind of, like schoolyard bullies would. The harshest attack is really coming from the Terry Cenobite who puts out cigarettes on her skin as like an attack. It's very anticlimactic. Yeah. I feel like they were trying to make Terry look like the lady Cenobite from the first movie with the throat thing, uh -huh. but then they stuck a cigarette in it. And that was just her only offensive power is yeah. cigarettes. She does have the cool, what they call called the opera gloves, where the skin from her hands is degloved and pulled back on wires. Oh, I hate they were degloved. But you don't get to see it. <laughs> you, you get to see them. I not, think they looked really cool. Not a lot. No, not a lot. But you don't get to see much of this a lot. Uh, anyway, so they're attacking uh, Terry. Uh, she's kind of like falling down in the middle of them while they circle her. Pinhead shows up uh, and kind of mocks her, but but while that's happening, she manages to unlock the lament configuration, which shoots out little laser balls that uh, appear to destroy or suck all of the new Cenobites into hell or something. And after a struggle, seemingly Pinhead disappears too, but you get the impression something different happened to him. Yeah. 
Joey then finds herself in the field uh, in Vietnam in her dreams, and this time her father comes to her and says that she has something for him that he was sent to collect. So she says, oh, it's the puzzle box, and gives it to him. But of course, this is a trick, and her dad is really pinhead, um, which he immediately reveals. He reaches for one of the like uh, torture implements on his waist, but suddenly they are teleported back to Elliot Spencer's barracks, uh, from earlier, and Spencer tells Pinhead that they're in his domain now. Pinhead still subdues Joey with some weird bondage ties, uh, like tie-ups, I don't know what they are, and a weird fleshy flower with like a bunch of torture implements and a drill inside that starts to like move towards her. But Elliot grabs the box and knocks it away from Pinhead, which causes all that stuff to disappear. They struggle, before uh, they combine physically in kind of a cool practical effect Mm -hmm. uh, with Pinhead absorbing Spencer. But Spencer maintains enough control to tell Joey to send him back to hell. She does so by converting the lament configuration back to its diamond form and impaling him with it, and he implodes back into the box. Uh, Joey then deposits the box in wet concrete at the construction site to get rid of it. Uh, but we see that this affects the building when it's finished as we zoom forward in time and we see that it's like entire interior is done in the motif of the lament configuration. Uh, and that is where the movie ends. Also, who like literally just seconds before this poured that wet concrete? I don't know. There's a lot of things. Don't ask a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Also, her hands, her hand is not covered in cement when she pulls it out in the scene where she's walking away. Yeah. <laughs> well, she she knew to grease it up beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> this actually does play into the, the next movie does connect to this. It does show oh, does this, it? it shows this building again and everything. Oh. Because um, I actually think the I think that this final idea we'll just get right into discussion is super cool. I think the idea that like the box is like so influential that if you just put it in this building's foundation, yeah, you get Lament Corp. Yeah. It, it, like, <laughs> It inspires whoever's designing it to, like, build the whole building into a lament configuration, which is, I think is a cool idea. I mean, the building looked awesome. Yeah, it looked sweet at the end. Um, all right. We'll start. Anna, what are your general uh, feeling, feelings on this one? I mean, this one was just silly and fun. It's got some good practical effects. It's got some really strange things. The end was great. Um, the acting is not, not so great, but that's, but all the main actors are so, so pretty. (laughs) I, I think I wrote as my letterbox review, I wrote, this movie is bad unless Doug Bradley is talking Yeah, because it really demonstrates his, it's his ability to like fucking put this movie on his back and carry it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Truly, though. But both Kevin Bernhardt and Terry Farrell and uh, Paula Marshall are all very pretty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Lo- lots of good looking people in this yeah. movie. No, if I if I had. Sorry, I took over Anna's high points. Uh, continue, Anna. No, that was what I had. Go for it. Okay. If I if I had been like in my teens when I saw this movie, I would have felt some things. Because there's some scenes where I'm just like, oh man, if I could totally imagine like some teen watching this in 1992 and being like, oh, whoa, Terry Farrell's very pretty. Yeah. And 
like any some of the BDSM like homage stuff, like when she gets like restrained at the end. I was just like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. If I was a teenager, I would have I that would be like thing you would tell your friends to pause the movie at. I saw this movie for the first time as a teenager, so I understand. <laughs> also, uh, one year after this, Terry Farrell would debut on Deep Space Nine, my favorite Star Trek. That's where I recognize her from. Fuck. Yeah. So I have I have a crush. I've had a crush on Terry Farrell for quite. And some what time. else? What else was she in? She was in. She was also else. in the show Becker. I mean, she's yeah. been in lots of things, but she was she was the uh, restaurant owner, diner owner, bartender lady in Becker. Yeah. Um, the Ted Danson helmed sitcom that lasted a few years uh, and prominently featured Shawnee Smith, who is a prominent feature of another horror franchise. Yeah. We'll get to. Fuck yeah. Is that the Scream one? Uh, no, that's the Saw. Ah. One, of the main ca- one of the recurring characters in Saw. Yeah, I know nothing about Saw, but uh, High Points, the Bargain Bin Cenobites are great. <laughs> Camera Head and Piston Head and CD Head. And the bartender and smoking girl, I love them all. I, I, yeah, I, I am a little bit divided. I do not like the CD one. I think, I think it's stupid. I also think it's funny that clearly some somebody in the production design, their understanding of Cenobites was you just take their defining like prop. And you stick it in their head. Yeah. And that's a set of that. Well, like, so I knew a little bit. At one point, I had read the Hellraiser wiki. Mm -hmm. And I knew that these Cenobites existed. And then I was like, oh, that guy gets a piston through his head. That's that's piston head. (laughs) Or like, Doc disappeared. He's going to have the camera put in his fucking head. (laughs) Or like... The DJ, when I saw the DJ get, like, impaled on all his CDs, I was like, oh, he's coming back as a Cenobite. You wouldn't kill that guy like that if you weren't going to resurrect him. And even Pinhead is like, uh, these aren't my best work, but, you know, they're... (laughs) That's my favorite part is Pinhead admits he's like a shadow of my former troops, and you're like, yeah. But they're enthusiastic. Yeah, yeah, these aren't these aren't the A grade Cenobites <laughs> yeah. you had. <laughs> yeah. They're trying A for effort. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think they're a mixed bag. I think Piston Head is genuinely cool and has like a unique uniqueness to him because he's animated. You know, because the pistons are moving all the time. Yeah. I think that he is uniquely cool. Like I said, I think those opera gloves are sweet, even though the she overall is not not my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Bartending guy, I could pass on. Yeah. yeah, but but that bar- so the bartender and the Cenobite are played by Peter Atkins, who seems like a cool guy um, from the interviews I've seen, and he loves this movie because he got to play a Cenobite and because he met his wife on the set of this movie. Oh, really? Aww. Um, and so, but yes, yeah. was it Terry Farrell? Uh, I don't think it's Terry Farrell. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I, I don't. I don't think that that is who it was. I think it's somebody on the crew. Um, yeah, they. I don't know. They just seem they're they're so fun and stupid. It's like yeah. it's like Dream Warrior powers, right? Where you're like, this is silly, but like I love it. It's and it's highly entertaining. Yeah, this is definitely a you could put this on at a party horror movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Terry as a Cenobite was bad and pretty <laughs> and pretty <yeah. laughs> with cigarettes instead of knives. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh, low points. Uh, the plot wasn't super great. It was act. I think it was actively worse than the last plot. Um, well, it tried to make a bit more sense, 
and uh, by trying to make sense, it failed. It, yeah, it failed it, at it. That's where the last it, one didn't really try to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. This this movie is just plot holes stacked upon each other, and asking you to be like, just don't don't look over there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep moving. Keep moving. Don't look. But yeah, this this movie is it's fun. It's dumb, but it's fun. So so the big yeah. the big difference here is that in this movie, Pinhead is a straight up slasher movie killer. Like he's quipping. He's mm-hmm. he's just murdering people wholesale, um, as opposed to kind of the like enigma that he like he and the Cenobites were in the last movie. They're just like monsters in this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you... he also definitely breaks his code of like harming no innocents because I I'm sure some of those people at that club were innocent people. Oh yeah. yeah, but he kind of the movie kind of explains that right by saying like oh now that we're split. Like, like we've been split from each other. He's like a savage, and he's released from the box, so he's like doesn't have to follow the rules. Mm, fair, fair. But he's still like all the worst parts of Elliot Spencer are in Pinhead. Yeah. Um, which I I think is at least kind of interesting. Uh, as I said, this movie was shot in Greensboro, North Carolina, pretending to be New York City, which is as somebody who has been to both of those cities, that is hilarious. <laughs> They kind of pull it off. They do. Yeah. They do a good job. Uh, although in the fi- finale scene, it's like the streets are so empty at night. I'm like, this doesn't happen in New York. No. The streets of New York are not this empty ever. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I, I, this movie, I don't think it is the same tone as the last two movies, but it is, it is, it. You smile yeah. while you're watching it, inevitably. Yeah. Um, other little fun uh, bits of trivia. Uh, the sex scene that is in this movie, uh, you might have thought, wow, his hands are just awkwardly like glued to her boobs for this whole sex scene. And that is because that actress did not want to do the scene topless. So the compromise was just to have Kevin Bernhardt just... Grope the shit out of her. Hold on for dear life. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's worse. Yeah, I was like, oh, she's... He's not letting go of her boobs because they can't show them. It was like, that's became, it's immediately obvious. <laughs> yeah. 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 I feel like that's worse. Yeah, because it's weird. It's It looks weird. The yeah. sex scene is is very weird. I feel like without that, the sex scene would still be uncomfortable. But Well, it's uncomfortable because you... It'll be sweaty, too. It's uncomfortable because yes. you know that he's an asshole. He's just using her. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, and you know he's going to do exactly what he does when he's done. Uh, except it, you don't know. I guess you wouldn't know that the pillar's going to eat her. But, um, <laughs> you know, it happens. Also, Pinhead on the pillar was upside down at the bottom. But after he drinks a little bit of JP's blood, he's like flipped up. Yeah, it's... Yep. So that he's standing up. I think there's two sides of the panel that depict Pinhead. That's what I... That's what I gathered. Mm. Oh, was there? That might be. I felt like it you, turned, you, you get a whole rotation and it shows a pinhead up and then the back is a pinhead upside down. And then the other sides have Ooh. the chatterer, the the first lady, Cenobite, um, and I think even the, the big guy. Butterball? Butterball, that's what his name is. I was like, it's, it's something that's like borderline okay, but. I love I love Butterball's look. I just love the big guy with the tiny little like shades. Yeah. <laughs> like um yeah. I I think uh I'm going to have to rewatch it just to 
take another look at the pillar. Yeah, the pillar's dope. I really like the pillar. Yeah. Maybe when we first watched this series, I felt differently about like I about horror movies. Maybe I was all I really wanted them to be more elevated at the time where I was in a phase where I couldn't appreciate something this stupid. Uh-huh. But I was like, wow, I, this was more fun, way more fun than I thought it was. I, I wouldn't call it good. Like, I don't, I think that I w- it would be hard pressed to say this is a good movie, but this is the type of bad movie I can really get behind. It's a fun movie. Yeah. This was the first one so far that I like remembered bits and pieces of the movie, but I didn't remember that I remembered them until after we had seen them. So it was kind of nice. This movie was definitely in Spencer's gifts. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, well, th- th- at least this one got a theatrical release. The first four got theatrical releases. After that, we go to direct-to-video, mm-hmm. which I, I have a soft spot just for direct-to-video horror because as a kid who grew up when video stores were a thing, the horror section was always awesome. It had so many cool movie covers that I would just sit and look at all these scary covers. You know, I think of things like Dead Alive or even like Jack Frost, Dr. Giggles, like all these like terrible like B rate like B budget horror movies. Dead Alive is good, the other ones are not. Um, but they had these sweet covers and I always was like I don't know, I I love that so much. So, I love direct to direct to video, direct to streaming horror. I think it plays a big part in the genre um so we're gonna we're gonna watch those after we uh we get done with the theatrical ones we have one more theatrical one um do we have any points though before we do some science i was miss i did misspeak about its release date it debuted in milan in may 1992 Ah. don't know the specific date it debuted in the u.s september 11th 1992 Hmm. oh on my brother's birthday. Oh, your brother has kind of an unfortunate birthday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of tainted for him, I guess. Oh. Uh, all right. Let's let's uh, let's do the scareometer. Hell, yeah. If you are new to the show, the scareometer measures Anna and Torin's journey into horror fandom. Uh, it goes from 0% to 100, and we are riding pretty high at this point. Yeah. The, the idea being that if the scarometer reaches 0%, uh, Torin or Anna are, like, fed up with these movies I keep showing them. Uh-huh. If it reaches 100%. We become Cinnababies. They be, yeah, they become <laughs> Cinnabons, Cinnabites. Cin- <laughs> um, no, they become true fans of horror, and they don't need me to steward them on this journey any longer. But we do get our own series called How to Love the Dark Babies. Yeah. 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 It's like Muppet Babies where I show up but only my my ankles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, you gotta get some clumpy shoes. Yeah. Uh I have some. I have some clumpy shoes. Nice. I, I consider them clumpy. Anyway. Some clompers. That, we're 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 being distracted. <laughs> Torin. Yeah. Last time you ended at a ninety percent rating. Yeah. Where are you after this movie? Well, let me solve my limit configurum here. <laughs> and oh god the pleasures the ecstasies i've gone up three percent the chains ah 93 <laughs> percent. wow that is high i still like this movie yeah i yeah i thought you might after watching it i was like oh i don't think this is gonna be the one 
they will they will get there though. They they get I still stand by that they get real bad. So uh, all right. I mean, so far I like the Hellraiser series quite a bit. It's my favorite series we watched so far. I guess the only series we watched is Freddy Krueger, but I like Hellraiser. Two. What's up? We watched Frankenstein. Oh yeah. I guess contemporary horror cinema. Hmm. This is still my favorite by a mile. Okay. I'll let I'll let the horror community at large decide what to do with that fact to you. <laughs> you put out there. I think everyone should have their own opinion, even if it differs from standard, you know, ways of thinking about horror movies. Anna, you were at seventy three percent last time. What are you at now after watching Hellraiser three? Seventy seven. Wow. Nice. Whoa. Oops. Not, not seven hundred and seventy-seven. <laughs> Sorry. Anna is horror movies now. <laughs> she starts speaking in that deep. She's a cenobite. <laughs> that deep voice of Pinhead, like. Ooh, what would my cenobite feature be? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I'd have to think about that. My my laugh could. Oh yeah. Cut all... through the ear. Yeah eardrums of everyone you laugh and it's like it's like the the musicians in kung fu hustle where like they play and like the notes become razors <laughs> that would be your like your laugh would do that that'd be actually kind of awesome it would be pretty sweet aaron's would be comic books or something with like game controllers like cords wrapping around people <laughs> yes um <laughs> mine would be sausages sausage head <laughs> Uh. Oh man! If what is the thing called that you stuff the sausages with? Uh, a sausage press or a stuffer. Because if you could like shoot those out from your hands, impaling someone with those would be kind of sweet. And then like you suck them through and they go into sausage casings. People on the sausage. Oh, there's like a grinder. There's a grinder in my head, and then they come out my hands. Yeah. Nice. I'm glad we got there. We're uh, gross. <laughs> all right. Our other bit of science is that we have created, as we've gone, a definitive ranking of quality uh, of, of every horror movie we've watched. As of right now, there are 30 movies on the list. Uh, the top ranking movie is Get Out. The bottom ranking movie is the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Uh, so this movie is going to go, presumably... Somewhere in between, uh, I was thinking maybe we would start this one in the direct middle of the list and rank it against A Nightmare on Elm Street. That's crazy. I was literally thinking the same thing. Oh, really? I was going to be like, put it between 13 and 15. <laughs> All right. I think, it's, I think it's better than I Saw the Devil, but I don't know if it's better than Nightmare on Elm Street. All right, that's that's an opinion. Anna, is this better than Nightmare on Elm Street? It's it does have some really fun practical effects. It does not have a bed geyser, and no one does that cute little goblin run like Freddy does. I I love the opinion. This is not as good as a Nightmare on Elm Street. Like to me, a Nightmare on Elm Street is a good horror movie with a lot of legacy. This is a bad fun movie. Yeah, I. I feel like they're pretty even. I like them each for different reasons. I feel like 
Nightmare on Elm Street is probably more important. But in terms of if I was given the choice of these two movies to watch again, which would be strange. Like, do you want to start with the first of a series or the third of a series? Strange either or. Um, but I, I would have a tough time picking. Well, you have to pick because Torn and I are on opposite sides and you are well, the decider. Right now I want to rewatch this one so that I can see the pillar again. But I don't know. Wait, no, no, no. I, you haven't heard my... I don't think this movie is better than Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. Oh, I thought you did. I might have misspoke. No, I'm, I, you might have misheard I, or I might have misspoke. But I think Nightmare on Elm Street, comparatively, I like the premise of the Hellraiser series more than the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Yeah. Comparatively, a Nightmare on Elm Street is a better horror movie than Hellraiser 3. Oh, okay. All right. I can live with that. Okay. So then it moves down, and that's where the comparison with I Saw the Devil. And that's what you said. You said it's better than I Saw the Devil. Yeah. Okay, I got you. I, I, I either I misheard you or something happened there. But, uh, okay, is this movie, Anna, better than I Saw the Devil? I mean, is it a better made movie? No. But is it more fun to watch? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't know that I would really want to watch I Saw the Devil again. It is very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Really good, but very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that this is better than I Saw the Devil. Well, this is a democracy for the most part, so I will abide by both of your decisions to put Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, above <laughs> so many good horror movies. <laughs> it's insane. I'm sorry. But that's the way it works. That's why it's definitive. Hey, we're putting it above Motel Hell. We are. We are. I mean, everything should be, so. We are putting it above Motel Hell, The Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Mask of the Red Death. There's, there's a lot that's going above. Hey, Anna, look to your uh, left. And then look to your right. <laughs> Do you see any doors? <laughs> nope. Because, damn it. So, see, there's the door. You see yourself out. <laughs> I wasn't going to walk into it. The door? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, don't let it hit Anna on the way out. All right. Hell... Motel Hell Hater. Hellraiser 3. Hell on... Motel Hell did nothing wrong. Uh... It did everything wrong. But that's the point. <laughs> what? I forgot what the director's name is. Uh, Ian Hecox. No, that's uh, the guy from Smosh. Anthony Hecox. <laughs> Anthony Hecox uh, is on, on this one. Yeah. Let me put that here. All right. Enters the list at number 16, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. A respectable showing for this movie for sure. Also, final saying, final parting words. Was there a custom song written for this in the credits? Oh, there's yes. a sweet, sweet. Uh, I don't know if it's actually written for this movie or if it's just a convenient um, coincidence, but there is a awesome Motorhead song. That plays on the credits, yes. Yeah, it is excellent. It's real good. Yeah. Yeah, hell on earth. Yeah. Um, all right. So, next week we're going to, of course, continue our Hellraiser and finish our first our first section of Hellraiser movies before we take a break for a week. We're going to watch Hellraiser 4 Bloodline from 1996, directed by Kevin Yeager. And then we're going to take a one-movie break to watch a movie from last year, since it's over a year old now, we can now watch mm. it. We're going to watch PG Psycho Goreman. Um, oh, dear. 
which I love, and I think Torin will love, and the jury is out on you. Because <laughs> <laughs> think of it as if, like, Harry and the Hendersons had a baby with, like, a tokusatsu, like, uh, like, Power Rangers episode with that style of costuming, like, crazy, big, elaborate foam costumes, uh, that was extremely gory. <laughs> And that is PG Psycho Gorman. Uh-huh. And I love it very, very much. And I'll see... I'm excited to see what you all think. Yes. I I am having difficulties putting that concept in the same lane as Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> well, because, because a little girl, like, finds a gem that lets her control this evil space lore, warlord monster. And then she, like, keeps him as a pet. It's it's kind of like a Harry and the Hendersons type thing. We're like, oh, the, it's a family and but the Harry monsters isn't with them. Evil. That's why I said it's like that meets this, but okay. like real gory and bloody. Okay. Uh, also, more queer friendly than that. All right. Be- because Psycho Gorman is a queer icon. Nice. Nice. Um, okay. Uh, I'm still on the Hellraiser <laughs> kick. Uh, so apparently, Hellraiser and Hell on Earth. Where at least Hellraiser, this, the first song off this uh, movie, mm-hmm. was written by Ozzy Osbourne, but recorded by Motorhead, huh. released as a single for this movie. And there's two Motorhead songs in this album. Sweet. Hellraiser and Hell on Earth. That's last, the first song and the last song are written by, uh, or recorded by Motorhead for this movie. That's sweet. That, that's, that goes pretty high in my list of uh, songs written for a horror movie. Yeah. There's, there's one we haven't covered yet that at some point we'll cover that you know, because our kids love it. Huh? Our kids sing this horror movie song all the time. Uh. We'll talk about it off the air, because I don't want to spoil it for tomorrow. Okay. Uh, but there's one other horror movie song <laughs> that I really, really, really love that, that is better. But I this when I heard the song, I was like, oh, I forgot this song, the Hellraiser song existed. And then I was like, this song kind of rules. Um, if you want to watch Hellraiser 4 Bloodline, it is available to stream on Tubi and Shudder. You can also purchase it on Amazon or iTunes. Uh, content warning for torture, mutilation, gore. I believe there's cannibalism. Um, I think that's it, though. I don't think there's, like, animal stuff in this one. I could be wrong. Again, if you have content sensitivities, please do your own research. Uh... If you want to uh, follow along with the show and see what we're up to, you can do so on Twitter at how to the number two love the dark. Uh, and on that Twitter, we have a link tree with links to a lot of other stuff. Uh, the list we just talked about, as well as our Discord, where you can send us messages or chat or see all the other stuff we do. Like, for instance, uh, I am on Twitter myself as well at NPC Aaron. I'm on Twitch at twitch.tv slash NPC underscore Aaron. I am uh, kind of, I'm kind of on Instagram at Guns, Gods, Ghosts. I should really post more. And I'm on... And by kind of, you mean not really at all. I know, but I remember like once a year to post something. <laughs> uh, Letterboxd, I am also, uh, I'm pretty active on Letterboxd, uh, which is where our link, it, our list is. Uh, and you can find me there as well as at Guns, Gods, Ghosts. Anna. Mm-hmm. You can find me on Twitter at Cellophobia with an S. And you can also find me on Letterboxd. There I am on a rampage. It's Anna with one N underscore rampage. And Torrent. 
yeah, you can find me Instagram at BracyTK. Uh, pictures of sausages and minis and sometimes cats. If you like the art that we have for our logo, uh, that was done by the talented Susie underscore draws. That's Susie, S-U-Z-I uh, underscore draws on Instagram. And our awesome theme music was done by a local rapper and producer named Dion Dusk. You can find him on any streaming service, uh, music streaming service. And you can find his original work as well as his group Slime Tyrants. Uh, if you want to, we would really appreciate any five-star reviews we can get on the podcast platforms of your choice, especially iTunes. If you leave a five-star review, I will read it on the air. Just maybe send me a message to remind me that it, you did it. Um, yeah. Because I forget to look. Uh, but the most important thing to us uh, to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend. Yeah. Tell a friend about this this podcast if you think they'd like it. Or if you think they don't and you want to punish them. Either way is fine. It boosts our stats. <laughs> Turn them into a Cinnababy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're called. That's what I'm calling them. Uh, with all that being said, we appreciate you listening and we hope you tune in next time to another episode of How to Love the Duck. Good night. Or come to daddy. <laughs>